If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Anarud Cool. He is the head of artificial intelligence and research at IRA and the founder of Seeing AI. He, um, before that, he was a data scientist at Microsoft for six years. He has a master's of computational data science from Carnegie Mellon. And um, some of his work was just called by Time Magazine, one of the best inventions of 2018, which I'm sure we'll come to in a minute. Welcome to the show, Anarud. It's a pleasure being here. Uh, hi to everyone. So tell me, I always like to start off with, um, I don't want to call it a philosophical question, but it's sort of a definitional question, which is, what is artificial intelligence? And more specifically, what is intelligence? So technology has always been here to fill the gaps between whatever ability is and our task. And we are noticing this transformation technology, artificial intelligence, which can now try to mimic and predict based on previous observations and uh, and hopefully try to mimic human intelligence, which is like the long-term goal, which might probably take a hundred years to happen. Uh, so just noticing the evolution of it over the last few decades, where we are and where the future is going to be based on how much we have achieved so far is just exciting to be in and be playing a part of. So it's interesting you use the word mimic human intelligence as opposed to achieve human intelligence. So do you think artificial intelligence isn't really intelligence? All it can do is kind of look like intelligence, but it isn't really intelligent? Well, you know, from the outside, when you see something happen for the first time, it's like magical. Uh, when you see the demo of uh, uh, an image being described by a computer in an English sentence, if you saw one of those demos in 2015, you know, it just knocks the socks off when you see it first time. But then if you ask a researcher, it says, well, it kind of has, you know, sort of learned the data, the patterns behind the scenes, and it does make mistakes. It's like a three-year-old. It knows a little bit, but the more of the world we show it, the smarter it gets. Uh, so from the outside, from the point of press, the reason why there's a lot of hype uh, is because of the magical effect when you see it for the first time happen. But the more you play with it, you also start to learn how far it has to go. Uh, so right now, mimicking might probably be a better word to use for it. Uh, and hopefully in the future, you know, maybe go closer to real intelligence, maybe in a few centuries. It's interesting that you, I, I notice the closer people are to actually coding, the further off they think general intelligence is. Do you think... Uh, do you think, have you observed that? Yeah, the, uh, so if you, if you look at uh, the industry trend and, uh, uh, and especially talking to people who are actively working on it, uh, they, they have, 
you know, if you if you try to ask them, when is artificial general intelligence, you know, the field that we're just talking about, going to come? Most people, on average, will give you the year twenty. Uh, uh, they'll basically give the end of this decade, uh, end of this century. Uh, that's when they think that artificial general intelligence will be achieved. So, uh, and the reason is because of how far we have to go to achieve it. At the same time, uh, you also start to learn, you know, as the year 2017, 18 comes, you start to learn that AI is really often an optimization problem trying to achieve the goal. And uh, many times these goals can uh, be, can be misaligned. So it will try to achieve no matter how it needs to achieve the goal. Uh, some of the fun examples, you know, which are like famous failure cases, where uh, there was a robot which was trying to minimize the time a pancake should be on the surface of the, you know, the pancake maker. So what it would do is it would basically flip the pancake up in the air. But because the optimization probably was minimize the time, it would flip the pancake so high in the air that it would basically go to space during simulation and, you know, you minimize the time. So uh, a lot of those... Uh, uh, a lot of those failure cases are now being studied to understand the best practices and also learn the fact that, hey, uh, we need to be keeping a realistic view of how to achieve that. Uh, so, so they're just fun on both sides of what you can achieve realistically, uh, maybe some of those failure cases, and uh, just keeping appreciation for we have a long way to achieve that. Do, do you think, who do you think is actually working on general intelligence? Because 99% of all the money put in AI is, like you said, to solve problems. Like, get that pancake cooked as fast as you can. You know, when I stop, start to think about, like, who's working on general intelligence, it's mm -hmm. an incredibly short list. Like, you could say open AI, the Human Brain Project in Europe, maybe, maybe your alma mater, Carnegie Mellon. Mm -hmm. um, who is working on, on it? Or will we just get it eventually kind of by getting so good at narrow AI? Or, or is narrow AI just really a whole different thing? So, uh, so when you try to achieve uh, uh, any task, you break it down into sub-tasks that you can achieve uh, well, right? So if you're building a self-driving car, you know, you would divide it into different teams. One team would just be working on one single problem of, lane finding. Another team would just be working on the single problem of how to back up a car or park it. And if you want to achieve a long-term vision, you have to divide it into sub-smaller pieces of things that are achievable, that are bite-sized. And in those smaller near-term goals, you can uh, get to uh, some wins. And, and in a very similar way, when you try to build a complex thing, you bring it down to smaller pieces. Um, a lot of, uh, some of, obviously, you know, uh, Google, uh, Microsoft research, uh, open AI, especially open AI, which is probably the, the bigger one in who is betting on this particular field, uh, have, uh, are making investments in this particular field. Obviously universities are getting into it. Uh, but interestingly, there are other factors uh, even from the point of funding. So for example, uh, uh, DARPA is trying to get in this field of 
putting funding behind AI. Um, as an example, they put a, like a $2 billion investment on something called as the AI Next program. And what they are really trying to achieve it is overcome the limitations of the current state of AI. To give a few examples, uh, right now if you train an image recognition system, that typically takes somewhere around like a million images to train for something like ImageNet, which is considered the benchmark. What DARPA is saying, look, this is great, but could you do it at one-tenth of the data? Or could, it, could you do it at one-hundredth of the data? But we'll give you the real money if you can do it at one-thousandth of the data. So they literally want to cut the scale logarithmically by like half, which is amazing, if it can right. be. Right, but I mean, a four-year-old, you can do it with three photographs, right? <laughs> True, true, true. Uh, this is these are open problems that we are you know starting to see work on. Uh, so zero shot learning is one of those you know one shot learning or zero shot learning with the minimal amount of images how we can train a system to replicate. And you can see that if you want to go towards a bigger problem like artificial general intelligence, solving these small even the smallest simplest thing, which is like show three photographs like a toddler and solve it is a remaining problem to be solved at this point in time. And, and really what, what people can do that's so interesting is that if you showed that toddler three cats uh -huh. and then you went out for a walk and you saw one of those Manx cats, you know, the cat without a tail, uh -huh. the toddler would say, look, there's a cat without a tail. Even <laughs> though the notion, they weren't even trained that there was such a thing. But evidently the Manx has enough catness about it, whatever that abstraction is, mm -hmm. that the child still correctly identifies it as a cat without a tail. And yeah. like, do we have to solve those kinds of, do we have to understand how humans do that before we can teach machines to do it? Or will machines learn to do it a whole different way? Um, so, so this reminds me of the uh, big news story from 2017 where uh, uh, Google, it's actually the, the story of the Google translator inventing its own language. That was like the press statement. Uh, so basically, uh, the problem was we need to translate language A to language B. Uh, and uh, you translate English to Spanish. So, you know, you need a data set. Then you translate Spanish to French. You need another data, data set of two parallel corpuses. And, but now with the effective representation of each and every language in one, in one way, uh, you could actually just show it a parallel corpus of English and Japanese, and maybe another corpus of Japanese and French, and it would start to automatically translate English to French, even though we never train it for that. Uh, uh, but how the press, you know, translated that to be like it started learning its own language, uh, and you know, uh, so 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 there are you know explanations that can be given on how things are learned. Uh, but the interesting thing is how it can start to simulate, like the example you gave of AlphaGo, uh, which was that it started to learn on its own based on simulations. Uh, so one thing I will mention is you know if you look at the trends that are happening and where we are going towards in 2019, uh, the big area of simulation 
to come over data scarcity is like one of the big uh, places how we, we are able to train and achieve some of this learning. And it has significant impact in robotics. As an example, when you're driving self-driving cars, you cannot, uh, you cannot basically go and have every kind of accident and then you know, relearn how to uh, cope in it. Another example being uh, systems that, uh, AI systems that are built for earthquake. You cannot go in an earthquake zone and just keep waiting for it and you'll have a few samples. So simulating those is like a great way of learning it. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, simulation will basically help us, you know, in a lot of achieving a lot of this. So your particular interest is in using AI for social good, especially for accessibility. So mm -hmm. let's start at the beginning of that story. How did you, of all the things in the world to do, why, why did you zero in on that? When did that happen? So, um, so you know, being in the field of machine learning for about 12 years now, uh, uh, you know, hackers tend to like to uh, find interesting problems. And being at uh, Microsoft Research, there are plenty of people to learn and work with to build something new. Uh, so uh, when I came to North America in 2015, uh, Skype video calls would keep me and my family connected internationally, you know, happy smiling faces appearing weekly over a screen. Uh, but as uh, my, especially with my grandfather, but as he started to age, it became pretty apparent that his uh, sense of hearing and vision were starting to decline. So simple conversations had to be repeated louder. Um, and my grandfather, who was a lifelong educator, a professor, an author, and an avid reader was having a hard time reading books. And finally, one day, he did not recognize my face anymore on the Skype call. So that was heartbreaking. So I started to look out for solutions that would help him, but was shocked to see the state of technology in the assistive space. I mean, we live in a day and age of self-driving cars. And on the other side, Technologies for assistive needs were feeling decades old. So when you can't find a solution, you do the next best thing. Uh, you try to build it yourself. So I got started, met a group of like-minded folks at Microsoft, and we started to explore this area of artificial intelligence for Microsoft research. So one of the great things in Microsoft is this whole uh, notion of hackathons. So Microsoft holds the planet's largest hackathon every year. Last year, it had 22,000 people participating in like 50 plus countries around the world. So these are employees where the CEO literally tells them, go take a week off, knock yourself off on the idea that you really want to achieve and try to achieve it. So, you know, me and a bunch of few uh, friends got started on this and we built a prototype of a talking camera. And this prototype was literally a cell phone duct taped to the head, MacGyver style. You could speak to it, you could ask it questions and it would give you answers. And uh, so that started to show a lot of promise. And so from that, we started to imagine how we can take this forward. So we uh, partnered with a company called Pivot Head, which makes smart glasses. You could now basically press a button on the glasses 
it would uh, take a photograph and a few seconds later, it would give you an answer back describing the world. So from that, you know, it got a lot of attention. It got viral on the internet. And so we started asking ourselves, how do we get it in the hands of as many people as possible? And that's how we launched Seeing AI, the talking camera app for the blind community. So Seeing AI is this uh, cell phone app that uh, is like a Swiss army knife. It is small, nimble, and has dozens of uses, all the way from you know, reading books, recognizing faces, describing faces, uh, uh, describing scenes, uh, telling you, you know, the color of your clothes. When you are at a cashier telling you, you know, what is the cash that the cashier just handed over to you. So the ultimate aim is that this is like a toolbox for a person who's blind to go and achieve uh, things independently at their own, uh, uh, you know, what, what they would like to achieve. And, uh, but what's really interesting is uh, in this journey, you know, you go and make technology, you get it in the hands of people, but then people come up and make stories out of it in their own life. So hopefully, you know, we can uh, later on discuss some of these amazing stories and then how that led to me, you know, working on a new technology called IRA. No, no, keep going. So, uh, so, so let me tell you a couple of stories. And, you know, this is the, like, even in your, uh, you know, two books, you know, you're talking about the human side of uh, technology and how it works with it. So here, you know, the story is, I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, we built a feature to explain where a face is in the screen in front of the cell phone, how far is the person located to the left, to the right, uh, you know, one feet or 10 feet from you. And when you take the photograph, it will tell you some attributes like gender, emotion, and uh, your age, you know, it's trying to predict it. So a smart a salesman started to use this to change his sales pitch based on the customer he's meeting. Uh, you know, I learned myself that uh, when my wife used to get angry, I used to take a quick photograph of her to tell what that thinks of her, but I learned never to do that again. <laughs> so so, so a, a quick example is like how people find it useful. So we built, uh, you know, a system to train faces on the device for privacy reasons. So you basically, a blind person could basically take three photographs of someone and uh, it would train a face recognizer live on device. So a professor took her phone, photographed her entire classroom, then put the phone on her desk looking towards her door. And now students cannot sneak in late to the class anymore because it announces their name. Uh, now, when we launched it, people you know, are creative. So they found a new use of currency recognition they found that uh, there's a guy in the middle of a $5 bill called Lincoln. And uh, so it's a president's face. And if you use face recognition, you can literally say that uh, that currency note is a $5 bill. So based on that hint, we basically built it a currency recognizer. Another really good example is uh, the law of face recognition itself is uh, when we launched the app, we noticed something amazing. Blind users started posting photographs on Facebook that they took themselves. It's like, you know, that hashtag blind photography just got real. 
And this was because, you know, when they go and meet a friend in a social occasion, they now know how to frame their face in the center, not too far away. And when they take the photograph and realize the friend is not smiling, they scold them and retake the photograph. And, you know, after all, who doesn't want smiling photographs on Facebook? Uh, another really great example was uh, we asked people, what's like, what's the thing that you need? And they said, well, we want to read text. So we built a real-time face recognizer, a real-time uh, text reading system on the app. And real-time is beautiful because if you don't know where the text is to begin with, you can just scan, say, a hotel and learn your hotel room number, your uh, thermostat number, you know, the temperature on it, or where the exit sign is. And then when you start learning stories of how people are using it, so people said that they never knew how much text was around them. So two really great examples where uh, people started to sit in the back of cabs, pointing the cell phone outside, and they started to learn new stores that have opened in their neighborhood. Uh, another good example was uh, uh, one user put the phone on a tripod, pointed it towards his television and he started watching Korean movies because the app was reading the subtitles in English. Uh, to, to just highlight like the smallest particular use of AI, you know, like to appreciate it. Um, the users asked us, hey, could you help us recognize products? And we said, sure, what's the big deal? So we put on a barcode reader, like a barcode reading library. You know, there are thousands of apps like that just slapped it inside the app and we said, you know, job done, you know, we're happy. And then we uh, uh, gave it to users and turned out it was rubbish. And the reason is because if you cannot see, how are you supposed to do where the barcode is to begin with? You know, that's just setting up yourself for failure. So what we learned from this experience was you have to keep the user ahead of the technology. So to solve it, we, trained uh, an AI model that can recognize barcodes from far away, you know, and what it would do is it would start beeping. So when it sees something that is kind of like a barcode, it would start to beep. And the closer you get, the more it beeps. So, you know, a user would take a packet of chips or like a Coke and they would start moving it. And when they start hearing beeps, they know, ah, maybe that's where the barcode is. So they start bringing it closer. And now, when it's close enough, the barcode reading library can then decode the barcode and, you know, tell you the name. Now, to do that before, blind users couldn't do, usually would not do that on a cell phone. So they would buy a $1,300 barcode reader which shoots laser rays. You know, the kind you see in Walmart. But now you can do that for free. And that's the power of what AI can do. So this experience taught that if you're solving problems completely, through AI, uh, what monumental effect that can have in the lives of people achieving millions of tasks and becoming uh, independent. And that journey led me to the new company, Ira, which now does a more interesting part, which is human in the loop. So it has humans who are interpreting the visuals of what a blind person is looking at from smart glasses. And now because humans are reacting to those visuals, we can uh, see the reaction of the human agent and learn 
with a human in the loop approach so that the AI will start getting more and more smarter over months and years and eventually start to take some of those low hanging fruits. So that has been like an interesting journey over the last five years from 2014, uh, from complete AI to human in the loop. And hopefully I think, you know, as the future comes in, I think we are just starting to pick the low hanging fruits right now. Uh, so it's really exciting to be in this field. So is your company, so it's a for-profit company. And so are you shipping a product or what are you building exactly? Uh, so we are uh, working on, um, we basically build a platform which can, uh, a user can use through an app. So you can download the free IRA app or you can wear the IRA smart glasses. Uh, you know, the beauty with smart glasses is that uh, it's a hands-free experience. So when you work uh, for someone who's like, you know, 80, 90 years old, who has never used a cell phone before in life, who doesn't know how to use, you know, it's not as technical. They All they do is press a button and it instantly screens the view from your cell phone or from your smart glasses to a remote agent who's now interpreting and telling you and describing your world in your ear, you know, through your speaker. So it's kind of like the on-star for the blind community. That's a good, good way to explain it. And where are you kind of in your product life cycle? Uh, so, uh, so the company started, you know, so the good thing is, is that, you know, you need the mixture of innovation in multiple places to happen. Uh, so luckily Google Glasses came out in 2014-15, which basically sparked this whole idea. Uh, and so uh, we started with, you know, um, demoing and showing the concept to uh, people and started giving it in 2017 and in 2018 basically had the whole revamp uh, and uh, uh, to be able to uh, uh, give these new smart glasses which are refined. So just to give an example, when we use Google Glasses, the battery would die down in seven, in 30 minutes. So by, you know, in a way, uh, by iteratively working on increasing that, now you can actually stream seven hours of live streaming video, which is uh, like the first in industry. Um, another example is, you know, when you go to a stadium, you, uh, uh, you know, your cell phones don't work. Usually they don't transmit packets because of network congestion. But by implementing something like dynamic network uh, prioritization, you can use it in a stadium. So we had a user who went to the Super Bowl independently and, uh, you know, had a great experience because, you know, you have innovations and connectivity on top of the smart glasses that happen there. Um, then on, uh, you know, the agent and AI side, we are basically playing uh, active learning based games where agents are shown images and they have to come up and guess words. Uh, related to the given image. And uh, as they start to guess, they are actually playing a game against an AI agent who's learning from the agents uh, and starting to guess and get better and better at it. Similarly, you know, when you're walking in a place like an airport, you would have an agent navigate someone, but maybe we can automate the problem by building a 3D virtual model of the world. And... Uh, try to know where the objects are in this world and navigate a person autonomously. So those are the, like the kind of problems that we are working on. Uh, 
but the transformative effect we have seen of having this technology um, is is the amazing part of it. Um, like as a, uh, as a like quick two or three examples, uh, you know, people experiencing their daughter's wedding sitting in the front seat and uh, knowing about how the daughter walked through the aisle, someone going to a funeral and finding the tombstone on their own, uh, someone going to Super Bowl. We actually had a user who ran the Boston Marathon uh, some fun examples are like trying to find things that have fallen off. Uh, we had uh, an example of an agent, a human agent, and uh, their a user's dog trying to find a, having a game between who can get to the chocolate first, because you don't want the dog to eat the chocolate if it has fallen off, right? Uh, so it's it's a fun, interesting stories which have a deep emotional connection, and where AI can be used here to help is the amazing part. So from the AI aspect of this, how are you doing training? And if, if it misidentifies something or it doesn't know what something is, does that image kind of get sent back and classified? Or like, how is the system learning? So one of the, um, uh, so traditionally, um, uh, like an image net was trained, you know, it would basically uh, collect a huge data set based on certain words that was uh, crawled on the internet and then it would get labeled. What we are trying to do is we are trying to look at what we are really unsure about, what we think we are we don't are not really sure about and basically looking at those items. So this is the world of active learning. Uh, so you are actively learning those items that you don't think you have enough confidence on you then present it to the agent. Uh, uh, obviously, you know, being very sure that there's nothing private in that particular image. Uh, and uh, then the agent, we play a game with them. So one of the good examples is uh, you show an image and the agent then tries to guess a word. We then have another agent or two or three agents trying to guess different words, which might describe the given image. Uh, and uh, the AI is also trying to guess some of the words. And then we try to see how much of them are matching and why are those some of those things that didn't match. And so when we start going, you know, tens, thousands, hundreds, thousands, millions examples, it starts to learn what it's missing. And, but here's the real key that um, as a practitioner, you start to learn, which, may, which, you know, we don't get to learn if you're just a researcher who was working on a static data set. When ImageNet was built, uh, it was built by collecting examples, but the data set had a lot of bias. And the bias was of human, uh, you know, a human bias. So when you look at ImageNet and you look at the data set, it has photographs of shoes that are close-ups. So the data set has a lot of objects which are close-ups. Imagine you are trying to look for caterpillar in the real world, caterpillar is really, really, really small. But if you look at ImageNet, you know, the area taken by the caterpillar is really big. Uh, so, uh, so you notice this bias. And for those reasons, many of the things in ImageNet doesn't translate to the real world. So what we are really working on is the real world. When we try to apply you know, many of uh, the big cloud uh, providers or the state-of-art AI, uh, AI models, they started to fail because they were trained on those data sets like ImageNet or Coco. 
Uh, and we are trying to work towards the more in the wild, badly lit. I mean, the world of a blind person who does not even know where they are looking towards, you know, messy, messy world. So uh, for those examples, uh, we are hoping that, you know, by training with the things that we are unsure about, we can start to get better and better over time and uh, hopefully fill the needs of our users well. And so what what are some of the, uh, other than that, which I, I get, the, the caterpillar and all that, what are some of the other challenges you're, you're facing and how, how will you use, I guess, data or te- what te- data or yeah. techniques we use to overcome them? So, uh, so some quick examples are, um, uh, you know, a good way of making real-world products, again, is to pick one problem, solve it well, and then try to see how you can generalize them. So one example was uh, uh, our users end up at an airport. They go to the baggage counter and they say, hey, if you see my baggage, let me know, right? Um, And we have agents who can see those baggages, but like, what do you describe the baggage with? Do you just say it's a yellow bag, right? Like, so maybe we could do it better. So what we started to do is before the user would actually send their bag before, we, the blind user would actually take four or five photographs of their bag from different angles, or maybe like a 360 degree video of their bag. And then we would put them in a drive online for our agent. And so the agent would then try to try to match that particular video of the bag with what's in there. So one example of something we are working towards is learning a model based on the limited amount of data we have of how the bag looks. So when the bag is now coming in the conveyor belt, we start to alert our agent that, hey, there is something that looks like the bag that the user had previously recorded. Obviously, this bag is going to not look anything, uh, you know, like the video that was originally recorded. But we are trying to basically learn again from very few uh, images of a particular bag how that would look like. So that's like one example. Another example is uh, we're trying to go towards learning in the 3D world. So most of the data sets are you know, in the 2D world learning from images, but we are trying to go towards learning from point clouds. Uh, so you could imagine that uh, your entire world is really 3D and the camera takes a 2D representation of it. But if you could go back from 2D into the 3D world, could you learn what are the objects located in this 3D world, and where is the 3D surface of those particular objects? If you're working in the world of augmented reality, as an example, and we knew the surface of the 3D world, we could then know, uh, uh, you know, where's the, where's the correct location of something? Maybe if you knew where the sofa is, you could actually help the surface of the sofa in 3D world, you could make the blind user walk and sit on it nicely. So we are trying to learn the 3D coordinates of this world in a large location like an airport. So I think that is our uh, North Star that we can take airport, which is like a complex scenario and make that happen in the next two years uh, and hopefully bring those technologies that we have in the self-driving world in the palm of a blind person to achieve more. So I think that's like one of the big goals that we have. And this can be achieved with both 3D understanding of the world, uh, navigation in the indoor world, 
and understanding of visual perception very well. And so what is the current price point right now? So, um, so this is actually a pretty interesting point. So, uh, you know, we are a subscription-based service, just like you have a cell phone and you pay Verizon, AT&T money uh, per month. We start at like a $29 plan, uh, you know, and you buy some minutes, right? Uh, so that was uh, that's like the classical subscription-based model. But we know that our users, uh, you know, 70% of our user base, I mean, 70% of the people in the blind community uh, you know, uh, are unemployed. 60% of the students who enter this community are, you know, not going to graduate. These are like the shocking statistics. So... What we, are, we have opened is a flip way of basically giving our service away for free. And the way is that we partner with uh, institutions, we partner with uh, uh, locations. So right now, about 25,000 locations around uh, United States have free IRA location, which means that the moment you walk inside it, IRA is available for free. As an example, when you walk into University of California properties like University of California, San Diego, uh, about 20,000 acres of it is a free IRA zone. So now if you are a student, uh, you have the option of studying and you know, having an agent available anytime, any day for free there. When you walk inside a Wegmans or Walgreens or Target, uh, and you want to do shopping independently, you don't need to have you know, a companion or ask for assistance because you can have IRA for free. When you walk into Heathrow International Airport uh, or Las Vegas, you know, again, IRA is free. So to a person who is blind, uh, the opportunities just become open. Another, another really good example is uh, we did a partnership with Intuit who sponsored small businesses. So because of the unemployment rate, many people in this community want to open businesses on their own. And uh, uh, so, you know, we opened it and we noticed that in the first two, three weeks, we had close to 50 new small businesses opened by blind entrepreneurs and are registered. You know, things like they would go and take photographs of the things that they merchandise they want to sell and put it on Amazon or Etsy, or maybe go to the tax website and self-certify them. Uh, another great example was we opened a program for uh, uh, people to, for, you know, carriers. Uh, so, you know, just like you have a gym membership, maybe your employers might give you IRA as an open uh, uh, benefit, you know, while working. But if you're going and trying to go for an interview, you know, we give you access for free. Um, so we gave, ex we gave 100 subscriptions to students for free. And the dropout rate, which was 60%, dramatically reduced. Uh, so we have students that are still continuing to, you know, study in this particular program. And uh, we can see that, you know, step by step, we can hopefully reduce the dropout rate in education by one-tenth and the unemployment rate in this community by one-tenth. And that's our real goal. And how many people are using the technology right now? We have a, a few thousand subscribers right now, um, you know, considering we have, you know, been in the, the space for about one and a half years publicly. I mean, in the selling uh, as an active subscription. Uh, but I think this is, you know, just increasing at an exponential rate. Every few months, you know, we are 
uh, almost uh, doubling the number of users. So uh, really what we are seeing is uh, by having this access available everywhere, step-by-step by partnering with uh, leaders like Target, like Walgreens, like AT&T, uh, I think they're just opening up the opportunities for blind people, and the more they get to know about it, you know, they just fell in, fall in love with it. So, are there other applications of the technology you're building that benefit like other groups potentially, or is it yeah. a highly specific technology? So, I think our uh, aim is focused towards our users, which is blind. But then, what we started to happen is we started hearing people who are not blind but starting to use our service organically. And we started noticing, like, why? And it turns out that uh, this was uh, people who are 80 years plus who are using the service just because, uh, you know, they find it uh, uh, really helpful to have someone who they can call and solve day-to-day needs. Uh, and this might not just be vision-related, uh, you know, you know, sometimes you need people to help you in, uh, I'm sure, you know, you must have been getting calls from your parents or from someone who might not know how to technologically solve something. Uh, and uh, so examples like that, uh, we started hearing a lot. Um, we obviously find a lot of people interested in use cases of IRA for uh, services like, you know, field workers who are in industry, in factories, who you know, ask us, hey, could we use Ira for training our people or maybe, you know, connecting them to experts? So as a quick example, you know, because of the training we are trying to do, we are trying to solve problems like if you call from uh, uh, the Denver Broncos Stadium, we can connect you to someone who is better at sports. Whereas if you are trying to call about makeup, uh, you know, am I, you know, asking for makeup advice, we can autonomously connect you with an expert who is, you know, empirically, we have seen females to do better at that. Uh, so connect you with someone who has served, who is an expert at this. So we noticed that the uh, when you start with disability as your first goal, you end up uh, opening uh, technology for many, many broader use cases. And, and, and just to add to this, you know, historically, this has happened that Accessibility accelerates innovation. So as an example, back in the 1800s, a gentleman uh, was trying to build a way for her blind lover to write letters legibly. And he ended up inventing the typewriter. Similarly, Alexander Graham Bell, I think you, you probably know what the story will be, was trying to build devices for his wife and his mother who were deaf. And he ended up inventing the telephone. Uh, Back in uh, the 1970s, uh, Ray Kurzweil, the famous inventor, you know, was sitting in an airplane and he was sitting next to a blind individual and the blind, he asked him like, what's the one thing in life that you really wanted? And the blind individual said, I want to read. I want to read books. So Ray Kurzweil went back into his garage, worked on a machine, which was this washing machine-sized giant thing. And that ended up inventing, it's a reading book, it's a reading machine. And that ended up inventing a flatbed scanner, 
text to speech ocr so you know when you have siri talking to you you can basically thank a blind person back in the 1970s uh so accessibility has helped accelerate mainstream technologies again and again and we are also finding that by working on blindness which is the hardest thing to solve for uh the uses of this technology can be so much more in future how many how many blind people are there in north america and in the whole world so in the world believe it or not there are close to 294 million blind users people around the world uh, so blind and low vision group this is like almost the population of united united states you know this is not a niche uh so in united states i think it's uh i think it's 22 million plus um so it's it's a large population so it's not something to ignore that's it and do you th- what would be the strategy for getting the technology in the hands of of uh less prosperous areas is that still via the cell phone uh that's a good question um so cell phone is probably a lot more ubiquitous like in a cell phone app because you know people around the world even in developing countries have cell phones right on android on iphone so getting them technology through the cell phone is easy but for someone who uh, you know uh, wants a better uh, user experience uh, wearable devices is probably a better user experience the way to go uh we also notice that you know when you see the plurif- uh devices like uh google home or alexa as they are actually going bigger and bigger we can try to have conversational interfaces with them to give them some information based on their surroundings and you know having some camera in their vicinity so uh that's a third uh place i i should actually mention that something i interestingly forgot is we also allow with the help of team viewer for agents to log on to a blind person's computer so imagine a blind person is trying to shop for clothes uh and they want an opinion you know the agent can actually help them uh, or we had a user who was trying to build uh was trying to release music and it happened that the agent we connected to was good at uh, graphics and photoshop so the agent was able to help them on the computer to design the graphic so it it's basically phone glasses on your computer and hopefully maybe in future on devices like alexa and all all right well it sounds like you're doing a an amazing job at solving a very hard problem and it's uh and i salute you for it and do you feel like the technology's finally like you couldn't have done this 15 years ago right do you feel like we have the technology now to do it and we just need the will and and i mean it's all going to happen now or is there additional technology that needs to be developed so uh i think 6 years ago we probably would not have been talking about this whole area uh as researchers we always see the promising uh trends uh follow it and hopefully you know a few years down the line they become reality uh beyond just hype um and this whole area of in the last 6 years as computation has gone up almost 300 th- 300000 times more computation power available for doing the same experiments 
how uh, the time to train some of these networks has reduced from months to, I mean, yesterday it was like four minutes uh, to train uh, these networks. Uh, as uh, more of the te techniques have come to improve the learning, uh, we see the direction it has gone in. And I should actually also give a shout out to uh, organizations that are learning to go in the world of inclusiveness, improve diversity, understand the risks, and also offer money to researchers. Uh, for example, Google uh, giving a $25 million grant for AI for Good. Microsoft giving close to $115 million grant for AI for Social Good. Uh, XPRIZE giving $5 million and a total of like $150 million for society, societal impacts. Uh, partnership for AI for giving $4.5 million. So, you know, if there are researchers out there listening, um, if there's one thing you should you'd hear, you know, you have possible funding to use your talents to work in the area of social good and make an impact that will be felt for years to come. All right. Well, actually, I think it's a great place to leave the conversation. It's fascinating what you're doing, and, and I'm sure it's very, very rewarding. I want to thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much, and it's a pleasure being here. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.